This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. This episode, we are joined by Vincente Rafael, and we try to understand photography coming out of the Philippine drug war under President Duterte. Well, hello and welcome to another edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. I'm your host, Eric Jones, and uh, with us in studio, uh, we have a we have a we have a special guest scholar who is uh, kind of led off our International Studies Week, Vincente Rafael. Uh, thanks for joining us, Vince. Oh, it's it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah, and uh, we we focused on some of his his newest research. Uh, on Duterte, Duterte and the drug war, mm-hmm. and we'll be talking about that. Um, but we also have some other uh, in-studio guests. To, uh, uh, Janet, you want to start us off? We introduce ourselves. Hi, I'm Janet Vallejo, graduate student, political science. Hi, I'm Cameron Foreman. Um, I'm a second-year graduate student of history uh, with focus on Philippines. Hi, I'm Izzy Squires, and I was a master's student at NIU a few years ago, and I uh, focused on the Philippines. Thanks, thanks. Um, and uh, it, it won't be a surprise to uh, to many of our listeners that Vincente uh, Rafael, um, who is uh, has an endowed professorship in the Department of History of the University of Washington, and author of many really important books in Southeast Asian history, Contracting Colonialism, Figures of Criminality, White Love, and his newest, Motherless Tongues. Um, and he spent a lot of time thinking of uh, uh, language and power uh, and its relationship in colonialism and in modern-day Philippines. And uh, one of, which is, I guess, an interesting um, diversion, or perhaps not, in your in your latest presentation you gave us, which is on... Um, photography and Duterte and the drug war. So, for our listeners uh, who don't know, what is the what is the drug war in the Philippines and what's going on? Yeah, uh, since uh, Duterte was elected as president of the Philippines uh, in 2016, uh, his signature program has been a war on drugs designed to rid the country uh, of drug users and drug dealers. Uh, and most of the targets have been uh, people who live in poor communities. Uh, there have been some some sort of more mid-level targets like mayors and so forth, but the overwhelming majority since 2016 precisely have been these, these uh, sort of impoverished uh, inhabitants of, of uh, mostly Metro Manila slums, but it's also spread into other uh, uh, metropolitan areas in the country like Cebu and Davao and so forth. He's basically taken the model of Davao and what he did in Davao while he was his, while he was mayor, uh, supposedly to rid the city of drugs. He's taken that model of using uh, police as well as uh, vigilantes, what other people refer to as the Davao death squad, to uh, rid the uh, the city of of not just drug users but petty criminals. Uh, uh, vagrants, uh, all sorts of things. And so when you go to Davao today, you have this impression of, of, of Davao being a very safe, very clean city, uh, very hospitable to business, etc. And he's wanted to take that model and nationalize it ever since he became president. Uh, the problem, of course, is that is that the Philippines is not Davao, and, and conditions are different, especially in 
a place like like Metro Manila. And so a lot of people have criticized him for uh, uh, using the drug war, uh, or rather have criticized the, the drug war as an exercise in treating the symptoms rather than the root of the problem. Uh, and uh, so this, 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 this massive disjunction between what he sees as uh, sort of the source of all evil in the country, which are these, the, these drug users and these drug dealers, versus uh, sort of the larger conditions that drive people to take drugs in the first place. And plus all the other sort of economic, political, and social conditions that are, that are attached to that. So it's created all sorts of uh, controversy. Uh, and in the meantime, the result has been uh, large numbers of deaths uh, in the thousands, uh, killings that are largely described as extrajudicial in the sense that, that the suspected or alleged uh, what's called drug personalities are uh, shot to death uh, without the, the benefit of a trial, without the benefit of, of, of uh, defense and so forth. So, so widespread human rights violations as a result have been laid on uh, the Turtas doorstep. Uh, what, what, is the, what does the electorate <clears throat> think of this? He, he remains popular. Um, surveys persistently sort of consistently put him uh, in the top like 75, 80% approval rating. So there's a sense in which his construction or his ideas about drugs and how they're connected to society, that these are, these are ideas that seem to be popular and seem to, to, seem to convince a majority of the electorate uh, so that uh, whatever, whatever resistance, whatever uh, criticism exists in the Philippines is, uh, tends to be sort of uh, dispersed. Uh, I mean, some people think it's growing, but it doesn't seem to sort of coalesce into an active resistance movement. Right? There is resistance, certainly. There is pushback, certainly, but not to the point where it endangers his, his actual standing. Uh, and those of his those of his uh, uh, supporters and and his his uh, 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 the people around it. So. How has photography played such an interesting role in the this part of the drug war? Yeah, well, it, I should I should emphasize the fact that it's not just photography for journalism. Yeah, okay. And what I talked about uh, today in my talk was precisely the the uh, one of the earliest respond respondents to the drug war have been uh, journalists and photojournalists who have been covering these nightly killings. Uh, and uh, some of the most arresting uh, images have been precisely images of corpses that have been killed and laid out in the street uh, with signs on them, often wrapped in packing. Yeah, I was going to say for our listener, what do, the, what, do these, what do these images look like? Um, Classically, in the beginning, like the first few months of the drug war, so the first six months of the drug war, there were a lot of a lot of corpses that were laid out, wrapped in packing tape, with signs saying, "You know, don't imitate me. I'm a pusher," and they were strategically deposited in different parts of the city streets so that they would be seen, obviously as warnings uh, to uh, drug so-called drug personalities and, and just the population at large to, to warn them away from drugs, but also, as I argue, as a way of advertising the power of the state uh, to govern by way of fear and to use whatever means was necessary in order to assert its sovereignty. Uh, that has stopped the, the the packing tape and 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 the, and the cardboard signs. Uh, right around 2017, mid 
I, I don't exactly know when it stopped, but that no longer happens. Uh, and whereas before, the government tended to, or the, the police tended to make it a point to 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 uh, uh, allow the media to photograph these these publicly displayed dead bodies. Uh, I understand that since around 2018, things have changed. Uh, the killings still go on, but they're a little bit more discreet. Uh, a lot of the killings happen indoors now rather than outdoors. So there's less public display of the corpses because I think uh, even the police probably have suspected that this has become counterproductive and have attracted have attracted uh, their fair share of criticism, especially from, from, from the international media and from, from international human rights bodies, rather than produce their desired effect of... Uh, uh, warning people uh, and advertising the power of the state. Yeah, I think so. I mean, and I think this this is very self-conscious on their part uh, in the sense that uh, it, it's not the first time. I mean, certainly places like Indonesia and, and other Southeast Asian countries, this has been sort of the way in which uh, dead bodies have been used uh, as signs of uh, the power of the sovereign, right? Uh, and of course, this, this is a very long history. It dates all the way back to classical antiquity and Middle Ages and so forth. So that these, these extrajudicial killings are really forms of pop, what I call public torture. They're not just killings, they're public torture in a sense that they're meant to advertise the extent and the depth of pain which those in power can cause to uh, uh, people who they deem as threats or as challenges. So it's purposely made a spectacle. I think so. I think so. Yeah. Although now, as I, as I said, there's, there's, it seems to be uh, less and less the case. Uh, perhaps police shifting to a different tactic. So, yeah. it, uh, you mentioned in your in your talk the the agency of the of the corpse. Right. What, what, where does that come in? Right. Right. Well, one of the things I one of the things I, I try to point out is the fact that uh, uh, the corpses. Uh, as I've, as I've mentioned, are used by, by the police and by the state to advertise their power. In that sense, uh, there's a sense in which they continue to have an effect in the world, right? Just because you're dead doesn't mean you have an effect. You, you, you've checked out. You know? and, and in fact, the corpse, that is the, 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 the living sign of a dead body, it's another way of defining a corpse, is a living sign of a dead body, right? Uh, is that it, it continues to exercise attention. It continues to exert pressure on the living. Uh, and, and it demands. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So in that in, in that sense, uh, the state indentures the corpse to do its work. Right. It can still be indentured to work, but on the other hand, I try to say the agency of the corpse could also be understood in a different way, as precisely witnesses. Right? The corpse is the first and the last witness to its own death, and that by right. taking photographs of the corpse, corpses, uh, and by by uh, uh, mourning. The corpses, putting them in a in a in a, in a sort of funeral context, uh, they are uh, their agency is led to uh, produce something different, which is uh, the community getting together, uh, signs of compassion, uh, and attempts at dehumanization. 
right? So the, for, the, the corpse could be the sign of the dehumanizing power of the state, but it can also be the sign of uh, the rehumanizing capacity of a community to uh, 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 restore the dignity of those who have been killed. What's the, you've done a lot of interviews and uh, with, with people in the press and the media and uh, photojournalists. What is their experience as they come across uh, yeah. a crime scene? I, you know, the, the thing is that when you read the interviews with the journalists, uh, one thing that immediately comes up is the fact that many of them talk about being traumatized, uh, being uh, sort of shocked by what they see. Uh, and uh, what I do in the papers is sort of try to ask, well, how is that problem of trauma addressed? Especially in a society where you don't have, uh, uh, you're not set up for, for therapy. You're not set up for... Right. Uh, uh, sort of a therapeutic response to trauma. And one of the ways in which they do so is they try to find a way of using their photographs to serve uh, in the process of witnessing to what they think of as, as, as gross injustices. So, so the process of witnessing uh, is one way of doing so. But in order to, in order to uh, move from being a passive observer to an active witness of injustice, uh, there's one more thing that the, the, the photographers need to do, which is that they actively need to mourn with the family of those who have been killed. So just this whole situation of sort of going to funeral wakes, of uh, becoming actually part of the family. Some of them have uh, stood as as uh, uh, ninongs and ninangs, that is to say, godparents to the kids of the survivors. Some of them uh, still see them every week, give them food, provide them with tips for jobs. Some of them have been part of trying to organize the, the survivors uh, into protesting the policies. Uh, so there are all these ways in which mourning takes place. Mourning is not just simply attending the funeral, going to the burial. Mourning also entails maintaining relationships. Uh, and it's these relationships that stand in contrast to the uh, sort of summary executions that uh, the victims have felt. And, and, and even through all that, I think as you, as you, as you pointed out, mm -hmm. there's this gulf between what one um, comprehends, uh, is able to comprehend, and what, and what one experiences. And mm -hmm. that, that the, um, what do they do with that, that traumatic space? Yeah. Well, as I said, one of the ways in which they deal with that that experience of trauma, when when what they see is far more than what they can express yeah. and represent, one of the ways in which they deal with that is by uh, sort of uh, with their photographs. They they turn their photographs mm. uh, into uh, archives. What I've been calling archives, uh, where where it's not just the past of uh, the victim that's memorialized. But it's also the hope of a certain kind of justice. Is it, is it therapeutic come. that they feel like that they they have to document this as a way of I think processing? So. Yeah, I think so. It's 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 this it's this impulse to document that for them gives what they're doing a sense of of, of uh, a sense of meaning. That this is this is where they derive their moral their own sense of of being moral people uh, by saying that what we're doing is for the sake of justice. If not now, then perhaps in the future. Actually, I found that kind of interesting because the uh, the photographer um, duly kind of exists in that moral economy of mourning, yeah. but also that monetary economy of photography as a commodity. Yeah, exactly. So they kind of have to, um, and and you also have that uh, the dichotomy of the guilt followed by the responsibility to take the pictures, but the um, 
the uh, the trauma and the, the PTSD um, in in a society that's not set up to treat those types of things puts puts an incredible amount of pressure on the photography for photographer himself. Yeah. Really, and yeah. from a personal standpoint, um, in terms of how the pho photography views himself as a human being. Yeah. So yeah. It's, yeah. It's, Complicate. What, did you, what, yeah. do you, what do you think about that? Yeah. Now, f first of all, I have to qualify my own position because I, I'm certainly not a photographer and I don't participate in the sort of, you know, night crawl that they do when you go from one uh, crime scene to another. So, my 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 knowledge of this is all is all sort of derived from from these interviews and 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 from from talking with some of them. And you know, my sense is that, is that how do they deal with it? Well, they. As I said, they tried to sort of reconstitute themselves as moral agents, and they use their photographs as ways of doing that. They believe that what they're doing counts for something. And what, what it counts for is towards the archiving of uh, uh, these, these what, what they think are unjust acts. Uh, and in fact, this is what, what really happens. Is these photographs not only circulate in, in, in global media, but they are also used uh, by uh, groups like Human Rights Watch, uh, Amnesty International, uh, the International Criminal Court, which is now investigating Duterte for crimes against humanity. Right. So there's a way in which these photographs constitute an important visual, uh, important body of visual evidence for whatever cases uh, might be pursued in the future. It may not come to anything, but nonetheless, it's there, and certainly, and certainly, as historians, we know how important this sort of visual evidence is in the future when you're trying to reckon with uh, the effects of uh, any particular regime. year or so you've kind of seen a saturation point with yeah. these, these pictures within newspapers and um, some of these newspapers in other countries have been recontextualized as high art mm. um, like you said with art galleries have you have you interviewed any photographers and um, on how they feel about their their um, works being kind of from the uh, taking taken from newspaper to mm. Uh, used for fine art or high art, or are they complicit in this? I, I, I guess that. Well, was I, 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 I think the idea that, that my sense is that, uh, uh, and again from reading about them, uh, my sense is that uh, to have their work treated as art and to be exhibited uh, for them is a form of vindication, because it means what they're doing has value beyond simply being commodities. That precisely that the archiving vocation of photography is further validated by the fact that they are being archived. Not only do the photographs archive what happened. That compulsion to document is yeah, validated. But, but the compulsion yeah. to document is also documented. So there's, yeah, yeah. there's a second and third order yeah. form of archiving that happens, right? So they now, it now enters into the historical record uh, precisely by, by, by being displayed. Plus the fact that, but that their photographs are noticed because they win prizes. Uh, a number of them have won, at least one of them has won a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, several of the younger uh, photographers have won all these, I mean, there are all these prizes they're winning right and left. Is that Rafi Arma that won the 
Rafi, no, no, it was, uh, it was uh, Daniel Barahulak, who is uh, who's a photographer for the New York Times. He's not Filipino. He's, uh, I think he's American. I'm not sure exactly. But, uh, but, 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 but Rafi has gotten a lot of attention. Ezra Akayan has, has won a, a bunch of prestigious prizes in England. Uh, and with, with these awards come not just recognition, but also come the possibility of having their work displayed in these other contexts. Uh, you have universities who uh, sort of invite them to give talks and so forth. Uh, and so what happens is they become, in this sense, they become real public intellectuals. Right? Their, their, their coverage mm. allows them to speak to a broader audience and to contribute their own thoughts as to what's going on. So that, I think that qualifies them to, for being public intellectuals. Alongside journalists, because let's not forget that journalists are doing the text. So it's not just the photographers, it's journalists who are winning prizes for getting attention, whose stuff is being published abroad. So, yeah. In, in, in terms of the, the actual photography, give us, some, give us a sense of how the mechanics work. How do they, uh, how do, they do crime photography? How do they find out? Yeah. How does yeah. the intel work? Who do they interview? Like, yeah. so what yeah. is that process like? Yeah. Well, in a way, it's an old story. You know, I mean, if you think about, if you think about some of the pioneers of crime photography, like Ouija. Right uh, in 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 New York City, it's like you know he had he, he was the first person to have a a police receiver in his car, mm. so he could he could hear where, where the crimes were happening, and he could rush over and, and 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 take pictures of them. And he used the flash, and when you use a flash, you create these dramatic contrasts in the photograph that you, the photographs that you take. Uh, it, it, these these photographers in some way follow in the way consciously or unconsciously of this tradition, right? Where uh, they they usually what happens is their night when then when they were doing this actively because not all of them are still doing it but when they were doing this actively their nights would start when they would uh, hang out the police station uh, and then and then once they got the call oh there's a body that's been discovered they'd all go right and then mm. as soon as they got there they'd get another call another body's been found so they'd all go and, uh, and uh, so they they would act on these tips whether it was from the police or whether from from funeral parlors or whatever. Uh, and and the pictures they would take would be these 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 sort of starkly illuminated images, uh, partly because of the fact that they were working with with natural light, uh, and so a lot of the light sources were coming from police, uh, uh, oh. sort of uh, what do you call the the, uh, the whirly things, the, the, the sirens or not the, uh, the well flashers, the, the, yeah. police lights, yeah. uh, or television lights. Uh, so a lot of this was coming from natural lighting. Uh, in fact, some of the some of the photographs you'll you'll notice are all in red, and the reason is because the only light source is coming from the bulb of the of the video camera as it's on. Oh right? That's the only light source that's coming. So so it draws from natural light, but the effect is to produce these 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 highly contrastive images uh, that, in my own talk, I compare to sort of like chiaroscuro Renaissance images. Uh, and the effect is precisely to give this 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 sense in which the, the, the these are photographs not just of victims but uh, kind of almost like a uh, uh, to, to to provide the sense of a sacred tableau, and to convert the to convert the dead into uh, almost like martyr like uh, figures, right? Uh, who then become available for mourning. See, this is the trick. The trick the trick is to 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 render photographs as well as journalistic accounts that restore. Uh, the identity 
or to restore the specificity, the sociological specificity of the victim, rather than erasing them, to restore that specificity, but then to present it in a kind of aesthetically compelling way that uh, invites the viewer precisely to, to mourn and to feel compassion uh, for what's going on. And to use your own words, kind yeah. of like a living image of the dead. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or, the, or, 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 or to see the image of the de to see the dead in the image of the living. So I was I, I kind of had a question dealing with the aesthetics of the images. Mm -hmm. um, here we see a lot of lighting um, halo effects um, that is is very symbolic of martyrdom and um, and is very interested in this this martyr aesthetic and how it it takes these individual deaths and for the collective good and how that uh, relates to the way that you mourn the people on an individual level. Yeah, I, I, I think because it starts with this idea of extrajudicial killings are all about Administering a kind of swift justice, right, where the where the, uh, the the killer is is judge, jury, and executioner, all at the same time. But what that does effectively is uh, by depriving the victim of due process, you deprive the victim of its its ability to be able to defend itself, be able to narrate its life, to account for what it did. Uh, you short circuit that whole judicial process for better or worse. Because um, some people will say, yeah, well, uh, there's no, there is no judicial process. This is the only thing that's available, so might as well do it. But for better or worse, you short-circuit that process, and the idea is that they, you end up rendering them anonymous. They become statistics. They become faceless. Literally, in some cases, when their faces are, are wrapped in tape, uh, they, they become anonymous. Uh, and so what the aesthetics of martyrdom does is it tries to walk back that process. It tries to reverse that process. And instead of rendering them as these obscure figures, what, what, what the aesthetics of martyrdom does is it restores their humanity by giving them a sense of face, by giving them a sense of, of, of identity as social beings who are part of a community, who, uh, who are, are part of a family. Uh, and it is precisely the work of mourning, which is why it's work. It's a lot of, it's, as you know, when you mourn something, it's a tremendous amount of labor that's involved. Uh, the work of mourning is precisely what that process is about, right? And, and that the, the aesthetics of martyrdom uh, can't be understood unless uh, you situate it in this context of trying to mourn and therefore trying to rehumanize that which has been dehumanized. And that, in turn, creates all sorts of interesting connections between uh, ethics and politics. And so that's, that's part of one of the things that interests me, is how, how mourning reconnects uh, an ethical stance with a political commitment. Some of the most, some of the most famous images, maybe the most famous image, um, is very much know, this Pieta, like, like a, you know, um, cradling the, the sort of the, the body of Christ. And, yeah. um uh, and, and it's not the only one that has those starkly religious overtones. Maybe say a bit about those you mentioned, and, and then does it, does that have a unique impact on a, on a heavily Christian uh, Philippines? You would think it would. You would think it would. But I think one of the problems is, and I, one of the most interesting things that's happened is that why 
while uh, you know these images are, have widely been circulated and certainly have, been, have had an impact uh, way beyond their original uh, intention, uh, and not just in the Philippines but worldwide, and to the extent it has brought attention to the to the drug war. Uh, what's really interesting is how, for whatever reason, and, and, and photographers themselves are puzzled about this, it hasn't made a damn bit of difference to the policy, right? Mm -hmm. Police haven't stopped killing. The president cannot be bothered to mourn these people. If anything, he has nothing but disdain. One of his speeches he regarded, uh, he referred to uh, the bodies of, of, of dead drug addicts as mere carcasses. Right? These are just mere carcasses. I don't really care about them, right? So, so basically, he has doubled down on on his on his disdain for for so-called drug personalities. So this for me has been very very puzzling, and I'm not sure I have the answer. The fact that you can produce all these images, you can have all these news stories, uh, you can have all these art shows, you can have theater, and it doesn't seem to make a difference in the long run. In terms of, I mean, it has an impact among those who are already critical. Right, so if 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 you're right. if you're part of that critical community, you're predisposed. You know, this you're predisposed. This is really important. But for those who are supporters of the president, for those who are outside of that critical community, is, no is that narrative like these are these are bad people? That's exactly what it is. Yeah, they did yeah. us a favor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they've bought into the narrative of the social enemy. You know, these are social enemies. These are people who endanger our society. Uh, they cannot be rehabilitated, they cannot be reclaimed, and therefore their deaths are fully justified, if not totally necessary. So, for and it's a chilling thought because it really we, is. We've, we've met that we've met that logic in so many so many moments of our history. I mean, we've you know that logic has appeared in so many horrific ways. So. When you fully dehumanize, yeah, that or but if it's such an evil, is there a sense like okay, well, let's <clears throat> let's put them on trial and have a the extrajudicial um, component yeah, of it? Yeah. Uh, th does that not spark? Um, and why not? Like outrage. I'm sorry. The the fact that it's happening outside the law does that spark? Outrage or why well, doesn't? It, I guess why doesn't it it? it? it it would spark outrage only if you trust the law. Only if you think the law works. I guess that's if, if you start yeah. off thinking the law really doesn't work, mm. you know. So this isn't so much against the law; it is in some ways consistent with a different kind of law. Finally, a law, finally a law that's working, uh, or something in from their yeah. minds, or like yeah. this is yeah. results we're getting. Yeah, yeah, exactly right, exactly right. Yeah, because I think people are people are mistaken <laughs> when they think that. Uh, for example, let's, let's take the example of corruption. People think, oh, corruption is horrible because it breaks the law, it hurts people, uh, it violates norms. But seen from another perspective, say from the practitioner's perspective, corruption is a very efficient way of accumulating and distributing wealth. It's a very efficient way of adjudicating conflicts and of securing power. So there is a, there is a kind of logic to corruption uh, that allows you to uh, sort of play a certain game, certain political, economic game, uh, from which certain people will 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 uh, gain and will 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 profit, and other people uh, won't profit. Um, and how different is that from, say, liberal capitalism? These um, these I, images. I was super cynical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's hard. 
It's hard not to. I, mean, I was going to ask about that a little later. Um, but I guess before we leave the images, I guess they're yeah. these are these are for many of us they're static images that are that are really powerful, but they that they they remain uh, kind of two dimensional. Uh, but for you mentioned for the photographers, uh, they're not, and the the sounds of the crime scene is something that you that you that you hear from the photographers themselves and the way that they are that they are haunted that they are continually. Can you can you say a little bit about your yeah. your research? Well, first of all, I wouldn't call the photographs static. I think, in fact, uh, uh, on the contrary, they're quite dynamic, in a sense that uh, uh, the 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 flatness of the of the surface of a photograph, I, and I think you can say this for all photographs, the flatness of the space in which the photograph appears occurs in, in conjunction with uh, an incredibly dynamic sense of time. Every photograph, as I said, has this doubled sense of time. Sure, fair. Yeah. It's, it's, it's about the past, but it's also about the future. It's about the future coming to pass, right? So there's, there's a way, and that, that's, that's why I call it an archive, because that's what an archive is. An archive is a, a depository of the past, but it's a depository of the past that looks forward to its activation in the future, right? So, so in that sense, a photograph always is affecting. Right, and this is particularly true if if you know the circumstances of the photo. If you look at the photograph of your loved one, or if you look at the photograph of a particular incident that you were involved in, uh, it has the power to precisely incite uh, anticipation, not just memory, but anticipation as well. Uh, so that's why these, you know, as I've described them, these photographs of the killings remain open wounds that refuse oh. to be sutured, right, and instead uh, continue to call out invitations for a work of mourning to continue to be continue to be performed. Uh, by contrast, I think videos of these killings have a different effect because they have a different temporality. When you watch the video of these killings, you sort of expect one image to be replaced by another and then another and another. And then you you form retrospectively, you form like a gestalt of what you've seen. Right? But the gestalt of what you've seen is always going to be very different from what you've actually seen. So I was gonna, as you know, whenever you go watch a movie, right, it's always like, oh, I think I saw that, but then there's all this stuff I don't remember. Right? So things right. become visible only to the extent that you, uh, you don't see other things. Other things become invisible. With the photograph, it's all there. You're looking at it, uh, and it looks like it's not changing. But in fact, what's changing is your relationship with it. Right. So there's a way in which photography establishes a different relationship with the viewer and with the photographer that I think arguably I think is, is 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 just as powerful, if not more more powerful than 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 video or or, or, or filmic filmic images. For the uh for the photographers I guess that's for, for us as the uh, the viewer, I think I think that's, yeah, and you that's and, right. And, and you have the, to and you, I think you have to imagine the photographer as a surrogate for the viewer. Mm. Always, and, yeah. and 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 the paper sort of constructed that way is to think of the photographer as a surrogate for the viewer. So. The uh, the the family, I guess the the you had. Could you share some of the the experiences of the, the photographers as they uh, maybe they feel compelled to 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 meet the families to go to the wakes, the sort of the the sights and sounds that are behind behind the photograph that yeah. Um, yeah. that they experience. Yeah. Yeah, no, because as I said, the difference is, especially for Filipino photographers, but it's true to some of the foreign photographers that have come in. I mean, they feel compelled, first of all, to attend the funerals for both practical as well as psychic emotional reasons. Well, the practical reason is that you go to the funeral so you get your information right. 
you make sure you get the names right, you make sure you get the occupation, the age, the location. You have to write a story about, you know, well, who is this person? Who are they related to? So, you know, you construct what I've been calling a kind of secular hagiography, right? In order to okay. fill out fill out the pictures. And then there's a psychic and emotional reason because you feel like, well, you owe these people something. You're taking something away from them, which is you're taking these images. Uh, what are you giving back, right? And so there's a sense in which you need to sort of invest some of yourself in respecting the dead, in uh, assuaging the grief and the suffering of the family, which in some ways is your own grief, right? Because it comes out of the sense of guilt that here you are, you're, you're taking pictures. Like what that Rafi Lerma says in his, in his interview, you know, we felt like vultures, right? And so there right. is always that sense of guilt that needs to be assuaged. And so you return and you grieve, you grieve not just for the sake of the family, but in some ways for your own sake as well. Um, Marx asserted that, you know, this, that, Capitalism destroys this veil of sentimentality um, between between uh, uh, worker and and boss. Uh, and um, do you think that does the photograph um, does it restore that that sentimentality? I guess thinking about your question about what happens in the the market of mass uh, consumption. How does how are we to think about something like that's so emotive and powerful like this and, and what happens with how we're supposed to feel about it as, as consumers of it. You mean the photographs? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, as I said, this is, this is, this is a real problem. And I think it's not just with the drug war. I think it's with any war. It's with any natural disaster. You see photographs or images of people suffering in dire straits. And the expectation is that, uh, well, you're supposed to commiserate with them. You're supposed to feel sympathetic, right? Uh, unless, unless of course it's, it's, it's. I mean, the other side of this is when you see tyrants uh, being put to death, and then of course if you if you're against tyranny, you rejoice. Yay! Finally, you know the guy's being beheaded, right? Uh, so either way, you're, you're supposed to feel connected to what's going on. It's supposed to elicit something from you. Uh, but, but of course, what happens with with uh, with uh, uh, mass media is that, you know, as I was trying to argue, is the commodification of these images leads to their obsolescence, their, their substitution and obsolescence. And therefore, what we thought we may, you know, what, what once made a terrific impact on us is forgotten. Uh, and it's a question of, and the question of forgetting is really, really interesting. Because on the one hand, uh, forgetting is also part of mourning. When you mourn someone, uh, the idea is you work through the loss of the person, whatever it is that you're mourning, uh, and in the process you're able to put it in place, literally bury it in the ground, and therefore give it a place in your mind so that you're not always remembering it, right? So in other words, you have to make a space for forgetting the loss. As much is as that keeping the wound the open? Or is well, that... th this is the thing, is, uh, is you can't keep the wound open forever. You can't. It's unbearable. So, you know, there's a tendency to want to suture it, right? Uh, and so the work of mourning always cuts both ways. On the one hand, you want to remember, but at some point you also want to forget, right? But you want to do so at your own pace and for certain effects. Um, and as I said, it usually takes enormous amounts of psychic expenditure to, and emotional investment to do this. With commodification, it's like happens automatically. 
right? Here's one picture of, you know, uh, people being tormented somewhere in Syria, and then it's replaced by another picture. And then you forget that picture, right? Here's pictures of refugees being drowned in the Mediterranean, and then that's replaced by another set of atrocities, and then you forget that picture. So it's, it's, it's yeah. a, a kind of mechanical forgetting rather than a kind of forgetting that occurs organically. That's the difference. And you have to – your brain essentially has to develop a schema – to forget what what you you you've seen in that sense, or yeah. to, or to mourn, as opposed yeah. to the mass consumption being kind of mechanical. Like yes, right, right. That's very very interesting to to look at it that yeah. way. It's in terms of having to create a schema, which means the the thing that you're trying to forget is still there. Uh huh. You're just layering it. Yeah, exactly. It's very very yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah, and in some ways it replicates the structure of trauma. Because, you know, the fundamental feature of trauma is you never forget it, you know. Uh, you can frame it, you can set it aside, you can, uh, but you, you never actually forget it, right? Uh, and so, uh, and, and it, it, it's, always, it's, it's always liable to be triggered. Uh, and you, des you described some of the photographers as saying that, you know, they, they, their dreams were all crime scenes. Exactly, and they like, exactly. So it's a perpetually open yeah, 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 yeah. It's a perpetually open wound, and the best you can do—I mean, you can suture it, but whatever, all attempts to suture it is all going to be provisional, right? Um, whereas I think with mass consumption, uh, there's mass consumption encourages you to imagine the definitive suturing of these unresolved issues. Yeah, and and and, and as historians, we know how you know this this happens. All I mean, why do we have racism? Because we've chosen to forget about slavery. You know, and it's when issues of racism come up, it's because the issue of slavery is unresolved, right? Uh, why do we have anti-immigrant sentiments? Well, it's because so much of this country was built on the stolen labor of immigrant populations. Yeah, and I think it so, the 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 mass consumption of of media from around the world makes it such that. We we we've come up with mechanisms for how do we? I met a high commissioner for refugees who just said, "Look, look, I can't, I can't think about all of this suffering exactly. all at the same time. Exactly. Like, yeah, I would be curled up in a ball, no, you know. Exactly. Exactly. So, so I, if it seems like I'm kind of callous, yeah. like, if, what what else am I supposed to do to survive? That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Shut yourself yeah. off. From yeah. Yeah. I, you know, this is a really interesting phenomenon because I've been. I, this is sort of the other side issue that I've been thinking about: is how do we do a history of trauma, or is history itself constituted by a series of unending traumas? So, how can you do a history of something that constitutes itself as the very basis of history? You know, it's it's it it it. it uh, I think it boggles for me. It, it's a source of deep deep perplexity. Right. I guess one one solution is you tell one one narrative, yeah. say a, a nationalist narrative that yeah. that pretends that um, either there were no right. traumas or all those were glor glorified. Right. Uh, um, and, you, right. and then if you if you try to tell the full story, then yeah. you can yeah you know you see that as a sort of a, a liberal attempt to. <laughs> You yeah. know, to to yeah. to get justice or something. Yeah. This is this is exactly the situation we're trying to uh, tell a, a narrative about the drug war, right? Because you're telling a narrative about a drug war, which is also a narrative about the contagiousness of trauma. How trauma jumps from the families, the victims, the photographer, the viewer, the historian, right? It just keeps jumping from one 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 party to another. 
so on the one hand, you're trying to tell, a, a, you're trying to create a narrative about this drug war. You're trying to account for it. On the other hand, you're completely in its grip. You're completely in its effect in the sense that uh, you're contaminated. Uh, by the very process that you're trying to relay. So then the question becomes, it's like a question of the photographer. How do you distance yourself? How do you reframe what you're seeing? How do you create a space and a time where uh, you can actually make sense of this without necessarily uh, dissolving into uh, these, 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 these unresolved ambiguities and, 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 and ambivalences? I don't know. I don't have a formula for that except to keep trying. Except to foreground that. You know, so what I do is I try to foreground that predicament rather than say, this is what we should do. This is who's at fault. This is who's accountable. In other words, rather than to yeah. create, create this, this, this uh, linear narrative of crime, discovery, justice. You know, CSI, right? <laughs> rather than, I mean, really, when you think right. about it, these, the, these are the prototypical uh, empirical positivist history. The, the detective is your prototypical empirical positivist historian. Solving right? cases. Yeah. You got to solve, you got a question, here's a solution. Uh, there's a dead body, we find out who the victim was, and we bring them to court. And that's the end of that, right? Uh, which is why, you know, it, it's interesting how, I mean, if you ask, this is one thing I think that, that historians and journalists or photojournalists share, is that they're both they both sense. Well, what do you do? Why do you do what you do? Why do you go back to the past? Why do you look at these things? Well, because you're interested in justice. You're interested in giving voice to people who have been screwed, whose whose lives have been ruined, uh, who've been oppressed, right? And so, uh, and, and I think this is what makes history modern. I mean, in the past, it was different. In the past, uh, historian's job was to celebrate the, the king, the monarch, was to write about the exploits of, of, of the leader, right? And today, it's like social history. And what's social history about? Social history about writing history of common people. And writing history of common people usually means writing about uh, the injustices that, 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 that have been visited on common. So, so we have this commitment to justice, right? Uh, but that commitment to justice can be overwhelming as well. It can also be blinding in some ways. about um, if you've seen any change in how these um, the victims have been portrayed because I think initially some of the photographs show group just brutality taping of the head the signs and then it's almost as if the killers know that they're being watched because the um, the killings have been documented and then had affected in any presentations or trends in terms of what the photographers have been seeing, you know, over the past couple years. You mean have things changed? Uh, in terms of um, the pictures themselves and how the um, the images are captured. Have they changed their style of, of, of photographing? Is that what you're saying? Um, photographing, but then has that affected how, um, as if um, people know that uh, these these killings have been documented and, and um, maybe adjusting their behavior based on that idea because they're seeing more. Yeah, I see, I see what you're saying. Um, two things going on here. It depends on the viewer, right? 
the people who see these photographs, who, who may be exposed to them, are people who read newspapers, who are part of uh, a, a particular kind of community that, that likes to think of itself as part of, a, part of a, uh, an informed public. Right? And for people who are part of the informed public, readers of the New York Times, readers of the Philippine Inquirer, and so forth, you look at these photographs and you say, oh my God, this is terrible, horrible, and so forth. So there are all sorts of moral assumptions that you bring into uh, seeing these photographs. For the majority of the people in the Philippines, especially those where these killings take place, they don't even see these photographs. Mm -hmm. And when they do, they may say, oh my God, uh, this is terrible, but yeah, he probably deserved it. Right? So, for example, there is a church, the Baclaran Church in uh, Manila, where the clergy was very opposed to the killings. So, so what they thought that they would do is they would get these photographs, they would blow them up, they would put them on tarps and line them up to the entrances of the church. And the idea was that parishioners would come, they would look at these pictures, and they would like, you know, form a kind of, uh, it would stoke their moral outrage, and they would oppose uh, this policy. Instead, what you get are people just walking by them. And I've, I've actually gone and, and watched people's reactions. They either ignore them completely or they'll walk by and, you know, just, it just doesn't register, right? Uh, and and, and uh, what, what does concern people is not so much the images. What concerns people is talk. So, for example, these anthropologists that I was telling you about who's been doing uh, ethnographic work in uh, the different uh, barangays or the different, the different towns where these, these killings are happening, What's happened is that the effect it's had is to uh, stoke a climate of fear uh, among people because, you know, these killings take place according to a particular procedure. The procedure is that the local uh, local officers gather names of quote-unquote drug personalities uh, and they give these names to the police and then the police knock on the doors, warn them, or just simply knock on the doors and kill them. Or they assign vigilantes uh, usually uh, working uh, for the police to, to do the killings, right? Uh, the thing is that is that uh, some of these lists uh, uh, make no rhyme or reason. You know, mm. Even local officials can find themselves on this list, depending on who's compiling them. And so the result is that you have these killings. The assumption is, oh, they must have been messing with drugs. But then there's enough of these killings where people were completely innocent. Uh, you were saying in some cases there's quotas that... Yeah, that's right. The, in, in the beginning, I don't know if this is still true, but in the beginning, uh, the local officials were given quotas for this list. And so they filled it up with people who even had nothing to do with drugs. There have been numerous children that have been killed as a result. Uh, and again, the police will always say, well, they were runners. They were drug runners. So they had what was coming to them, right? Uh, but what it's, what's, what's created is, a, is a, a climate of fear in these communities uh, and what these climate of the, this, this climate of fear has to do with sort of creating uh, a kind of uh, you know what what an anthropologist friend of mine calls an illegible terrain of violence. There's just two kinds of violences. What violence you can understand, violence that you say, well, you know, the guy was killed, he deserved it. And then there's the other kind of violence that I don't understand what happened. Why is this person getting killed? He had nothing to do with it. Does that mean I might get killed? Does that mean my neighbor might get killed? Because, you know, it's, it's, so it, it creates this, this real alarm that, that these violence and the, and, 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 and the deaths could be contagious, that could, they could go out of control. And I think that's what matters. It's not the photographs. It's the possibility that, oh, I just saw a dead person. Uh, could that be me? You know, this person had nothing to, and so it, it's the illegibility of the violence uh, that causes alarm. Uh, that then people 
step back and begin to question, begin to wonder, what is this policy about? Is it really working? They begin to distrust the police, right? At the same time, there's no other sort of uh, structure of authority they can bank on. And so while they may distrust the police, while they may be convinced that the police are behind the killings, nonetheless, they still go to the police when they need help. Because the police, as far as they're concerned, is the only thing that stands between them and utter chaos. Right? So it's, they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Zinde, is this is this going to be part of a, a larger book project? Is this is this uh, is this an article? What what tell us tell us what to look forward to? Yeah, right now it's uh, it's two part essay. There's a there's this essay on photography, and there's another essay that I've just finished writing, which is going to come out soon uh, about tricksterism, the whole idea of the sovereign trickster, and trying to figure out the logic, not just of Duterte's governing style, uh, which I compared to that of a, a trickster but also uh, trying to account for his popularity. This is the most remarkable thing. Unlike, for example, in the United States, where Trump, Trump's popularity basically has hit a ceiling, and it's certainly not going to go up, and, and hopefully it will come down. But in the Philippines, there doesn't seem to be any way of touching his popularity. We've gone through the killings. We've gone through economic uh, 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 problems, inflation, uh, uh, everything. The, the, we've gone through foreign policy dilemmas with the South China Sea uh, and China uh, sort of for all practical and pur uh, intents and purposes, colonizing the islands of the South China Sea. Uh, none of this seemed to matter to his supporters. You know, I, his support holds very steady around the 80% uh, level. Uh, and so there's an enormous amount of confidence uh, that he can do whatever he wants to do and do so with impunity. So the uh, governance by fear, governance by impunity, uh, seems to be well entrenched right now in the Philippines with the active complicity of many of his supporters. And that's what I'm trying to understand. What I'm trying to understand is, is not just how uh, governance by impunity works, but why it is that it seems to attract the consent of so many people. How much, how much of his approval rating is kind of um, artificially manipulated through um, pressures within religious organizations, such as like Iglesia Ni Cristo? Yeah. Because um, yeah. from what I've heard as far as um, in terms of the voting bloc, there's a possibility of being excommunicated from the church by not voting with the church. Yeah. So in the same sense, yeah. I don't know how that translates to having such a um, artificially high um, approval rating. Yeah. Yeah, this uh, the whole the, the question of polling is very complicated in the Philippines. You have a number of, you know, largely independent, highly regarded polling uh, outfits like the uh, Social Weather Station, uh, Pulse Asia. Uh, these are fairly reputable, um, and they differ in their approach to uh, the kind of samples that they gather. Uh, Social Weather Station has a much smaller sample of anywhere from 1,400 to 1,800 people that they ask. Uh, Pulse Asia is much more extensive in their um, poll, uh, poll in their data gathering techniques, um, and uh, they do not just rely on religious affiliation. It's pretty much across the board that you know, all, and and they disaggregate. The results are usually disaggregated according to social class and according to levels of education and according to region. So I think you could say that um, uh, a lot of the polling data is is. You know, I, I would say it's fairly, it's fairly accurate, 
right? It's not it's not driven by religious affiliation or anything yeah. of that sort. And so and and again, as I said, it's surprisingly it's surprisingly consistent. He's always hitting about between seventy five to eighty percent, sometimes eighty five percent, regardless of what's going on in the country. And that's that's what I'm trying to understand is the you know, uh, that, that copacetic relationship between Duterte and his followers. And you see it when you watch his speeches, you know, you go on, you go on like, because all his speeches are archived. And, you know, he makes the most amazingly obnoxious jokes and everyone's cracking up. And these are not like poor people. These are like, you know, professionals. These are people in the Bureau of Internal Revenue or, you know, gathering of uh, the medical professionals of the Philippines, you know, and they're like, ha, ha, ha. Everyone's laughing at his jokes. And you go, why? Why? Is it because they're doing it out of fear? They're afraid that if they don't laugh, that uh, they'll come after them? Or are they doing it because they feel that Duterte is saying things that they would like to say but are normally forbidden from saying? So Duterte engages and indulges in the forbidden for them on their behalf and that they enjoy his transgressions because they wish that they could do those transgressions. Yeah, so... And I'm inclined to think of the second. <laughs> well, uh, we'd love to have you back soon to, yeah. to talk about that and other issues. Yeah. Uh, uh, thank, thanks so much to our to our guests and especially Vincente. We, yeah. Uh, thanks yeah. again. You're welcome. We'll see you soon. Crossroads would like to thank Joe Kinzer for today's music and the GV for production assistance. 谢谢您的收听，我们下次再见。